To say oil is a part of life in Texas is an understatement. From the accidental discovery of crude oil in East Texas in 1894, drilling and the boom and bust cycles of growth incumbent with extraction have been a part of Texas culture. Drilling for black gold, Texas tea, oil, that is, has reshaped the state's economy, cities, and small towns, and our environment in ways that will have impacts for centuries to come. One of the most pressing of these impacts is the afterlives of oil wells. Just because a well no longer produces oil doesn't mean it isn't producing numerous other chemicals and threats. In addition to leaking toxic gases that just so happen to contribute to climate change, these sites can be local hazards that endanger nearby populations, especially when they form into sinkholes that have, in many places, swallowed entire streets and buildings. Today on Gulf Streams, we're discussing orphan wells, what they are, and what we can do about them. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Diluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. When an oil well is capped, we imagine it no longer causes environmental risks, but in practice, many wells throughout the state aren't capped or are improperly covered, often because of deterioration or even repurposing of materials from the sites by government agencies, which was especially prevalent during World War II. Part of this problem is historic. We've been drilling for oil for well over a century in Texas, and many wells were run by companies that no longer exist or have even been largely forgotten about as time has gone on. But the lingering impacts on the environment, and especially those who live near these sites, can be severe. Do you have a story or question about orphan wells and old drill sites? Give us a call today at 713-526-5738, extension 2. 713 713- Five two six seven five seven three eight extension two. Today we're talking with Amanda Drain, energy reporter at the Houston Chronicle, who just completed a fantastic series of stories on orphan wells across the state. And we're also joined by Paige Powell of Commission Shift, a statewide watchdog organization that's been working hard to raise attention to orphan wells and recently put out a report and toolkit specifically on how to address this issue. Uh, Amanda, Paige, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Um, so I, I just want to start off with the really basic. <laughs> there's there's three kind of terms that we tend to hear around these sites. Um, one I've already used, orphan wells. A, a broader one, abandoned wells. And last one, the the thing that we really should have saved this episode for, for you know, Halloween a month from now, um, are, are zombie wells. And maybe, Amanda, uh, could you just explain what these terms actually mean and how they're different and, and what we're talking about? Sure. So an orphan well is a well with no known owner. Um, either the <clears throat> the known owner doesn't exist anymore or it can't be traced to a particular owner or that oil company has filed for bankruptcy or doesn't is dissolved. A zombie well is a well that had, according to records, been plugged at one point, um, but is leaking and is now no longer adequately plugged um, or perhaps was never adequately plugged. And um, an abandoned well... Really encapsulates uh, both of those things, I think. <laughs> well, well, I, I mean, but the, by the industry terminology, an mm-hmm. abandoned well 
means that a, a, a well has been plugged. Um, it, it's a, it, when they, they plug and abandon a well at the end of its useful life, presumably if everything goes according to plan. And um, so a, an abandoned well is a well that has been pl- plugged and abandoned. But we, outside of the industry, <laughs> might have a different understanding of that word. Because abandoned means to neglect, which so it, there's a there's a confusion I think between attention between industry lingo and, and and how we would commonly interpret it. Right. Yeah, but in these cases we're we're talking about wells that potentially have been plugged, but oftentimes either haven't been plugged or properly so, or are now starting to cause new problems because of deterioration. Because as we said, right. many of these sites century old um and so the technology has has changed substantially um and so i'm wondering if you both could could speak some to the risks of these places why why are we diving into this topic (laughs) uh yeah i'd actually like to offer before we move on from the definition that there's another sort of like we have orphaned and abandoned wells there's also inactive wells Mm. which are owned by a current operator but they're not using it and it's not plugged and oftentimes these wells get um, unlimited plugging extensions and so they're not technically abandoned um, but they're open and emitting all types of fun stuff um, just like an an abandoned well would an orphan well and then we also have um, undocumented wells Um, there have not been immaculate records kept since the dawn of drilling and so um, ranchers and um, folks in West Texas are often finding wells that aren't even in the Railroad Commission's database of orphaned and abandoned wells. Absolutely. I mean, I mean that's, you know, in, in prepping for this episode, I'm, I'm looking around and seeing some articles that are saying, you know, oh, there's 7,000, you know, of these wells in Texas and seeing other ones that, you know, oh, there's 20,000 of these. And I'm, yeah, the number I've seen is, is 8,500 <laughs> orphan wells, but over 113,000 inactive wells. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's an order of magnitude difference when you're talking about is the state really taking care of its liabilities and doing what it's supposed to do. And, and before we jump into what the state is doing, which we're absolutely going to dive Sorry. into. No, 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 that's great. Um, I, I, I want to know, though, what are the risks? What, what are, why are we talking about this? I, I mentioned some of the chemical runoff, but, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of scary effects tied to these, these sites. So can you talk some about what these are? Well, I would say that the the biggest takeaway for me when I was looking at this was how little we know about how often um, these unplugged wells allow chemicals, water waste with chemicals, radiation to leach between the different um, layers that the, the the seal is supposed to protect, like per, our aquifer, our aquifers. How often? Um, is this stuff le- leaking? We don't know. Um, there, there isn't a really good answer to that question. Maybe Paige knows more than than I do about. Yeah, I, I think the risks for orphan wells in particular, abandoned and deteriorating wells, aging wells across the state, is that as they age and there's no ownership of them, the casing starts breaking down, and so there's absolutely much more opportunity for them to leak, you know, um, oil and gas, um, toxic chemicals and other things into the ground, into underground sources of drinking water, contaminate aquifers, um, you know, contaminate groundwater, which is not just bad for, um, you know, ecosystems that... that that you know grow in the soil but also um 
wildlife and uh, ranch animals and and the people who live there and farm and you know use drink well water right I mean I think that's the, the biggest thing that that I'm really concerned about in my work is this contamination of sources of drinking water in an era of growing water scarcity um, as we look at the climate crisis and you know dramatic temperature fluctuations and drought things like that um, you know contamination of our natural resources is a really big threat and so um, I think that's one of the the largest concerns that I have around orphan wells. Absolutely. So I think just to to add some some hard terms so we have an idea, right? Some of the things that we've seen are sinkholes. So as the water table gets affected, sinkholes start to form. And these can be really massive. They can swallow buildings, they can swallow roads, um, but they can also then leak all these things up, right? And I think you've done a good, a really great look at Lake Bomer um, and really explored, you know, there's there's benzene there, I believe, but there's radio uh, radioactive isotopes, which you start to see and you go, wait a minute, there's radiation coming out of these sites? I mean, this is, uh, and, and that's addition to methane, things we might more commonly expect to be leaking, which beyond just smelling really bad for anybody who lives around that place is also directly contributing to climate change. So there are some really tangible impacts that we can immediately trace to these places. Right. Lake Beamer is is maybe the poster child for, for how bad a site can get when no one takes responsibility for it. And the Railroad Commission will tell you that it's a water well. It's not our jurisdiction. Um, and that's kind of how it has been allowed to fester because there's no there's no real jurisdiction for a century old water well that hasn't been plugged but um if there if the materials that are populating the lake are from oil field waste it does create raise questions about and and just since it is the poster child, I mean, can you describe this site to us? I know you've, you've spent time around this area. You know, what, what does this actually look like up close? I, w- I wished the photos that accompanied the story uh, could be scratch and sniff <laughs> because it reeks of rotten eggs. I mean, mm. it, it hits you in the face when you get out of the car at, at, at that site. And um, the, the air is salty. It you know it kind of feel it has like you're standing at the edge of the ocean feel, mm-hmm. but it's very drying, um, mm-hmm. and the and the the salt gather was gathering in my on my hands and my skin, um, it it the, then the alarm started going off telling us that the the air we were breathing while we were there wasn't wasn't safe. Um, it was it was quite a sight. Yeah, quite an experience. Um, but yeah, the the water that's that's coming out of that well, and you can see it, it, it comes out at quite a clip. It's gurgling from below mm-hmm. um, constantly, and um, it, according to hydrologists who have tested it, it uh, it has it has methane, hydrogen sulfide, which is poison poisonous gas, radioactivity, and that's not surprising because there are normally occurring radionuclides, right? (laughs) I'm asking Paige. (laughs) Um, That, that are trapped inside the rock. So when they, when they, when the oil and gas companies drill for oil, it's, um, it releases other, other mineral minerals, radionuclides that are, that were trapped 
alongside the petroleum and the rock. Um, and so when water is flowing beneath the surface, as it is clearly, um, it's carrying other other things with it, like the radioactivity and um, pooling it there um, in, a, in, a, in a toxic lake that never existed before man's interference. Uh, Lake Beamer, I think, is really interesting. We like to point to this one, too. It was actually brought up um, at the last Railroad Commission open meeting a couple weeks ago, and one of the commissioners retorted back that, again, this isn't their jurisdiction. It's a water well, and our position maintains that it was drilled as an oil and gas well. Um, it was then there was no oil found. It was plugged. It was transferred as an as a water well, and now it's leaking, like we said, radioactive material from oil and gas operations. And so that that falls under the definition of orphan well. Um, it very clearly could be the Railroad Commission's problem if they wanted it to be. But for 20 years, this well has been spewing toxic, deadly fluids and gases, and our 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 Commissioners at the state are just sort of passing this hot potato back and forth between TCEQ and Railroad Commission like they don't know what to do about it. But it just shows a real lack of concern for the health and safety of the people of Texas. I want, I want to pause you there. I, I absolutely want to keep digging into this. But I, I feel like I need to, to channel um, my inner boy from Louisiana who moved to Texas a couple of years ago and was very confused by the Railroad Commission being a point of conversation yeah. uh, in, in these oil and gas topics. So can you can you explain why we're talking about the Railroad Commission sure. for this? Yeah, the Railroad Commission of Texas is the state's oil and gas agency. They don't have anything to do with railroads. The name is a legacy from a time gone by, and the commission has failed to modernize with the needs of transparency. You know, um, we've had a – that's one of the things that we started commission shift with was a petition to change the name because Texas people deserve to have transparency at the ballot to vote for the Texas Oil and Gas Minerals and Natural Resources Administrator, whatever it is, right? We can come up with something um, that makes more sense than Railroad Commission. So, And I think that's really important when we're talking about, you know, going to commissioners and meeting with the commission. This isn't like, oh, the Railroad Commission, oh, they just happen to be having, you know, thrust in charge of this project. Mm-hmm. This is what they exist for. Yeah, they are the oil and gas regulators for the state. There's three of them. They're elected. Um, you know, you can vote for a commissioner. I don't think this year, but I think next year's election. Um, you know, and so it's something that people should be aware about. You know, they have a lot of power. What do they say that the Texas oil and gas uh, is like something about 40 percent of the, the we produce 40 percent of the nation's energy needs here in Texas. And so they oversee a huge economy. Yep. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, they um, you know, if we had maybe more um, upstanding um, folks in office, we wouldn't see so many problems. Um, and then you mentioned another organization, TCEQ, and I'm wondering if you can just tell us what their role in all this is yeah. and, and define that for us. So that's the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, and these are two different um, sort of arms of our state government that have jurisdiction over different things. The Railroad Commission <laughs> does mining, oil and gas, and pipelines, um, soon to be you know hydrogen and maybe geothermal, which sort of crosses into different things because the, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality does groundwater quality, water quality, air quality, and, and then there's the Public Utilities Commission, which sort of overlaps um, Railroad Commission a little bit in, in the transmission of natural gas and, and different things. So we have these sort of like three agencies at the state level that are, you know, um, nobody's really sure. I mean, there's 
some confusion as to who's in charge of what and what makes sense. So, um, Which is really important because it gets to a broader problem. I mean, this is absolutely a Texas problem. It's also a national problem. It's also an international problem. Um, and who you know necessarily is in charge of these different places and, and needs to, to act on it. You know, I, I remember reading in some of your articles about ranchers who have gone out and, and plugged these themselves and the expense of that, you know, the average is supposedly 20000 or something, but the, this rancher, you know, spent 23000 plugging one well and then spent $203,000 trying to plug another one and then had to give up because it was just too cost prohibitive. And so that's, you know, almost a, yeah, a fifth of a million dollars that, that, that didn't even get the well plugged. And that was after the Railroad Commission had plugged a well on a site for something close to $900,000. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> which, which also points to the disparity of the expense of this, right? And so when we think of, oh, $20,000 to plug a well, well, that's not representative of what the range of these problems can look like. Yeah, that, w- that was one of the, the big takeaways, too, is just the vast differences in cost and and how we don't really have a firm number of what it, it will cost society in general to to fix some of these wells. I mean, the orphans, some of the orphans are quite old, um, and there are a lot in West Texas uh, where we, we don't know, we don't, there are undocumented wells we don't know about, there are wells that predate modern reporting there are wells that uh, presumably the the steel casing could have been ripped from the ground during world war ii because it doesn't appear like there's anything there we don't know if uh, there was one uh, where they pulled burlap sacks out of uh, according to to one source I'm assuming that's not regulation approved. <laughs> and maybe at one time. <laughs> Point being, we, we've changed somewhat in how we think about these as well, um, both in how we plug them, but also part of why we're talking about this is the the growing complexity of these sites, right? That it, you know how how we deep we we would drill for oil in 1910 is not remotely comparable to what we're doing today. And the and when the Wells are left unplugged for decades, for a century. The the structure of the well can deteriorate. Mm. So when they go back in to plug it at this point in 2023, they don't quite know what they're dealing with because their the structure could have deteriorated, and they have to they have to fiddle with it to find the bottom of it, and that can be hard depending on what kind of structure has been left behind. And I imagine that makes it infinitely more complicated. Right. A drilling rig costs a lot of money. And uh, the more weeks they have to spend finding where the bottom is, the more the dollars add up. And I think that's something that, you know, both the complexity of with these older sites, and we, we don't know who's accountable for these things. And at the federal or the state government, and to some extent the federal government today, you know, a lack of accountability as well about which organization is responsible for this. As we were talking about with Lake Beamer, you know, the Railroad Commission has said this is this is not an oil and gas well, which we can test with, or many people will contest with, well, it was drilled for oiling. Just because you didn't find oil doesn't mean it's not an oil well. Um, and and then to some extent, what you were talking about, Paige, with the you know the water issue. 
these these wells start to form networks of a sort and they get interrelated and so when when one well starts to have problems it can directly impact surrounding environments and, and other wells nearby especially if we think of wastewater that's often pumped into these wells yeah. and that winds up coming out elsewhere do you, do you want to talk about some of this yeah that's that's actually kind of the biggest thing um and overlap that i see uh, problems with orphan and abandoned wells and problems with injection wells mm. um you know i've been my work focuses on carbon capture use and storage and the use in there really stands for eor stands for enhanced oil recovery and that's where co2 is pumped into um, non-performing wells or wells that have already sort of like reached their um you know maximum volume uh, or production volume due to you know normal um, operations and so they start pumping fluids in to produce more hydrocarbons and so you can put water in there you can put any number of chemical cocktail including pfos forever chemicals but co2 is one of the favorites because um, it's buoyant it really gets things moving um, but it also comes with a nice tax credit for carbon storage um, wow. for 45q and you know part of that <laughs> to compound the problem because there are many in this scenario is that as things sort of start moving in the subsurface right and finding these unplugged wells and avenues for escape we're not just seeing the leakage of you know toxic gases and brine water and all of these other things, but the CO2 is leaving as well. So like any carbon or climate benefit that we would have had through enhanced oil recovery storage of carbon dioxide um, is completely lost. And this is one of the major reasons the federal government is really passionate about this, isn't it, that we have you know these tens and tens of thousands of sites that could be leaking, you know, if they're not today, maybe they are tomorrow, that, you know, are a concern for us for a host of environmental reasons, but also because collectively they start to really add up in terms of of gas leakage that contributes to climate change. Um, So I I see we have a call from TJ. So we'll go over to TJ. Hi, TJ, you're on the air. Um, uh, Tell us your question. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm a commercial real estate agent who believes that you have done a good job scaring the public about wells. <laughs> and I'm hoping that you might talk a bit about the types of wells that we find in the city that are for groundwater monitoring that may be less than 200 feet shallow. And um, if the public should be concerned about those types of wells having a negative impact or if it's a benefit to society and what the cost should be from the state and federal government to go into private property to monitor these issues. Thank you. I can't speak. I, I don't know what type of wells um, we're talking about, wells to monitor groundwater. Um, it doesn't sound like it's in the jurisdiction of the Railroad Commission since it's maybe not an oil and gas well. Um, again, that kind of points to the problem, but I can't speak to that question. Um. TJ, it was, mm-hmm. uh, I encourage you to email me at amanda.drain, <laughs> D-R-A-N-E, at houstonchronicle.com, um, and we can chat more about what you're seeing. Um, I mean, when you look at the Railroad Commission's GIS map and you, you zoom in on Houston, uh, you can see that there are some some areas where there, was, uh, where there were old wells um, south of the loop, to the north, um, northwest of the loop, um, Conroe area. So just because a well is old doesn't necessarily mean that there are problems. Um, it just means 
we should all be keeping an Attention. eye out. <laughs> I would also encourage you, actually, um, in Amanda's, you know, kind of studio series of, of three different articles, all focused on this topic, um, but also put out a really excellent map of, of wells around Houston um, that I glanced at and, and really kind of sat there thinking, I'm not going to see too much like in Houston proper, right? And was, was a little shocked, <laughs> actually, at how much was right around us, um, especially in areas like Spring and uh, Prairie Oaks and, and Baytown, which Bay town i found unfortunately less surprising given the the various complex environmental histories around there but you know as we talk about subsidence really becoming a major issue in spring in that area you know i think being aware of of the well population there is really key to understanding that conversation so it's it's certainly um uh, around uh, something that we should be thinking about. And I would absolutely say go check out all of your coverage of the Houston Chronicle, um, but also check out that, that great map the Chronicle put out. Um, Amanda, can you can you give us your email address one more time for, uh, for TJ? Sure. It's amanda.drane at houstonchronicle.com. So I want to dig in um, a little into the Railroad Commission itself. What is the Railroad Commission doing about this, and, and should they be doing more? And if so, what should they be doing? What is the Railroad Commission doing about orphan wells? Well, I think they're actually pretty proud of their orphan well plugging uh, work. They talk about that at the open meetings um, pretty regularly uh, as we continue to challenge them. Um, I know that there is some movement at the federal level to allocate federal funding for plugging of Lake Beamer, since we don't seem to um, be coordinated enough to do that our own here in Texas. Um, but the state maintains that they're plugging more wells than the rest of than anywhere else in the country, which is probably true. But we also have an outsized proportion of unplugged wells, um, and I think you know, as I pointed to earlier about the un- inactive well problem, um, how there's over 100,000 inactive wells that are currently owned by active operators, but they're, you know, uh, been inactive for more than 12 months with un- with untold plugging extensions. Some of these wells have 20 years of plugging extensions, and so they've been sitting there idle for decades, just, you know, emitting all sorts of carcinogens and neurotoxins and, um, you know, uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Um, so I would say that they're not doing enough. Yeah, the um, the Railroad Commission is proud of its its well plugging program, and I think as far as the states go, it does have one of the more robust well plugging programs. But that is as it should be because Texas produces the lion's share of the oil in the U.S. Um, yeah, I think the question is, are they are they bringing in enough money through mm. their their revenue, the, the fund that they've created for this purpose? Um, and some would say no. And the I mean, the, the industry would tell you that they they pay, they already pay a lot of money for this fund. Um, you have the the federal government kicking in now five billion for the purposes of plugging old wells. Um, there's questions being raised about how to bring in more money for this purpose and who should be footing the bill. There's a, a movement to incorporate carbon credits and in to incentivize energy companies that are and well plugging companies to go and plug old wells in exchange for, for carbon credits. There's um, there's people talking about how the Railroad Commission could 
and should increase the bonds that are associated with these wells so that they have a bigger pool of money to use when um, a, a well goes is, goes into orphan status and there's no company to plug it. Well, and something that, I mean, the Railroad Commission understandably wants to, you know, demonstrate their achievements and put forward what's been successful. Famously, they have continued to state there is no systemic issue here. Um, and I'm wondering how much just even a, a kind of mental frame change, you know, more than 44,000 of these wells, have, the, the Railroad Commission has been plugging since the 80s. Um, and I think at a certain point, you know, if we're talking about 40 years of doing this, this is, you know, thousands, about a thousand wells a year. Like, that's not systemic. This this feels like we continue to discover and have new ones that go offline <laughs> have to be dealt with. Um, and so it, it seems like a systemic response would be warranted in some way, which certainly is about funding, but is also just about thinking more largely, I think, about how these are monitored and understood and investigated. Right. That's just it. If, you're, if your orphan well list number never goes down because more come online than you plug every year, then you're not really doing the program a service, right? So what does that mean about how do we invest more funding into it? And um, Amanda, you hit it right on the head around, you know, how do we um, set up the fi- financing structures for these wells in the first place to prevent orphan wells from happening? Um, there's also sort of like predatory, predatory transfer policies that we can prevent, you know, of, of a well getting transferred to smaller and smaller operators until that operator then goes bankrupt. And now the original, you know, multi-million dollar highly financed operator is long gone. Um, so there are a lot of policy changes that can be put in place to really prevent and phase out the phrase orphan well. I mean, Texas is proud of its oil and gas history, and I, I think that that's something that we can we can ride on. We really need to, like, you know, be the sort of leader of the world in energy policy. We have the opportunity right now to do that. Thank you. So we're, we're about the halfway point. So I want to switch over now to um, a research piece that one of our researchers, Jaden, did and, and give her the floor to talk about some of the national ramifications of the issue um, uh, for a minute. So we'll, we'll go over to Jaden now. Jaden Brayboys, and as previously mentioned, orphan wells present major issues not only in Texas, but nationwide as well. The United States is grappling with the concerning abundance of orphan wells, posing both environmental and community hazards. In a journal article published by Resources for the Future, an independent nonprofit research institution that studied over 80,000 orphan wells across the U.S., unearthed that 4.6 million people live within one kilometer of a documented orphan well. While not all states struggle with this issue equally, The top five highest producing states of orphan wells are Ohio with over 20,000, Pennsylvania with over 18,000, Oklahoma with over 15,000, Kentucky with over 13,000, and lastly New York with over 7,000 as of 2022. The health effects stemming from these wells are substantial. Unlike the occupational hazards experienced by upwards of 150,000 oil well workers in the U.S., a significant portion of the aftermath affects local communities and individuals instead of those employed in the oil and gas industry. Many unplugged wells excrete harmful chemicals, one being a colorless gas called benzene. According to the CDC, it has been determined that benzene causes cancer in humans. Long-term exposure to high levels of benzene in the air can cause leukemia, cancer, blood-forming organs. Further, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency classifies benzene as a known human carcinogen for every route of exposure, whether inhaled, ingested, or absorbed through the skin. 
and the World Health Organization has concluded that no safe level of exposure to benzene exists. Benzene is also known to cause damage to the nervous, immune, and respiratory systems. We observe that there is publicly available data illustrating the detrimental consequences of benzene emissions from abandoned wells. Yet there appears to be a lack of significant effort to mitigate further risks for communities residing in close proximity to these wells. A research study performed by the American Chemical Society in western Pennsylvania, just about 80 miles northeast of Pittsburgh, gathered data on 48 orphaned wells. The results displayed that there were volatile organic compounds, or VOCs, being released into the atmosphere. Physicians, scientists, and engineers for Healthy Energy measured that many of these wells were releasing benzene at concentrations as high as 250 parts per million. For reference, that is 250,000 times the permitted exposure limit in the state of California due to health and safety standards. More information about this particular instance is published on the Inside Climate News website. So now we know that orphan wells are highly toxic to people, but what about the environment? As we've discussed, orphan wells emit many toxic chemicals into the environment, methane being one of them. The ongoing release of excessive methane emissions into the atmosphere perpetuates the presence of undesirable greenhouse gases, which stand as one of the foremost drivers of climate change, a situation we aim to avoid. In addition to contributing to greenhouse gas emissions, unplugged wells contribute to contaminating our underground water supply. A statement published by the Texas Groundwater Protection Committee states, Abandoned wells are a threat to water and public safety. Abandoned wells provide a direct channel for contaminants to pollute the aquifer below. The introduction of these chemicals into the groundwater is currently having adverse effects on both the environment and public health. Land disturbance is another significant issue that can be linked to orphan wells. The infrastructure associated with oil and gas wells, including access roads and well pads, can disrupt natural landscapes and habitats. In an article by Matthew Morin, professor of biology at Hendricks College, he explained that restoring these lands could remove millions of tons of carbon from the atmosphere as vegetation regrows on them, providing an estimated $7 billion in benefit from reduced greenhouse gas emissions. It also would provide a habitat for wildlife and could produce timber for harvesting. And because healthy ecosystems filter air and water, returning these lands to a natural state could reduce air pollution and improve drinking water quality. Initiating the restoration of these lands previously impacted by oil wells can help alleviate some of the adverse effects impacting ecosystems inhabiting the area while also enabling the land to undergo a cleansing process to remove the long-standing toxicity it has harbored. So what are states doing to rectify this issue? Some states are receiving grant money to help cover the cost of plugging these orphan wells. For instance, as of 2021, 26 states qualified for a $25 million grant, according to e and &E News. However, the study titled Environmental Risks and Opportunities of Orphan Oil and Gas Wells in the United States provides valuable insight into the magnitude of the effort required to seal these abandoned wells. There are 130,000 documented orphan wells in the U.S. This study states that it will cost somewhere between $6.3 and $8.4 billion to plug all of the orphan wells properly. Given this information, we can see that the grant money states are receiving is really only going to scratch the surface on the actual cost of fulfilling the goal of eliminating orphan wells. Nonetheless, in addition to federal funding, some states are trying to implement more regulations for the drilling of oil wells, and in recent years, well plugging programs have increased in popularity to help reduce the environmental and health implication of these wells. 
From our observation, the problem of abandoned wells is multifaceted, affecting numerous essential resources. Nevertheless, there is optimism that through environmental initiatives and government support in covering well plugging expenses, we can anticipate improved land quality, ecosystem health, and community well-being in the vicinity of abandoned wells in the near future. Thanks, Jaden. And so one of the things that I think that really brings up for me is thinking about the unequal distribution of these things, which is something we talk about a lot, is who is most in proximity to this. Um, Native American communities are more than twice as likely to be near an orphaned or abandoned well than other populations. Uh, certainly, as you mentioned in the Houston map that I, I saw this morning, uh, you know, Baytown, uh, which has historically been a site of a lot of, you know, the kind of worst environmental effects of the city. Um, and so one of the things that I want to think about is, if you want to bring this in, is both the human toll, and I, I know, Amanda, in particular, you've been out and you've met with people who this directly impacts, and if you can just talk about, you know, some of the stories you've heard or things that you've seen, um, but also who are the communities that are most affected by this as an issue? You know, I don't know if I am qualified to say who is who has been most affected Um I think that the ranchers in West Texas, uh, they have, they are r- ranchers by nature, paying attention to what's going on on their on their property, and they, um, they are inclined to protect their their property because it's their their source of income. Um, I think, arguably, they are more inclined than, say, a residential owner to to notice and and say something um i i did speak to one woman um who did not know that she had orphan wells on her property until they started spewing salty water um so there are there are people out there who may be living on top of wells that um they, they don't they don't know they are and um, there are people out there who who know but don't know what the impacts could be um, I think this is a story that's still unfolding no for sure and I think that's you know actually was something I wanted to bring up is this idea of it can be on your property and not knowing there was a push for a bill a few years back to directly write that into deeds that if there's a well on your property it would be there it failed um, and so there have been efforts previously to really make it where no people shouldn't be unaware of what's on their own land that there is this risk and yet exactly I mean it's exactly the story you've just told that people it's it's a kind of incredible to think about that idea, but that there could be one in your probably very large backyard if we're talking about West Texas. But right. yeah, yeah, Paige. I don't know if you have any opinions, but um. I mean, I think the issue of orphan wells and the issue of sort of problems in the field, in the oil and gas field in general, um, is is pretty broad, right? We have a very big range. We have a we have a big state. We have oil and gas development all across the state, and we have a wide range of constituencies there. We are definitely seeing ranchers and people in West Texas who have properties that are seeing wells that they never knew existed. Um, we're seeing folks down along the border in drilling communities that are, you know, being impacted by waste pit permits and injection wells. And, you know, these injection wells, um, 
I think some of the bigger problem is that, you know, they're not just doing CO2 enhanced soil recovery. They're doing wastewater injection and they're, they're taking a lot of the, you know, wastewater and produced water from, um, you know, hydraulic fracturing and other drilling operations and injecting millions of barrels of, of wastewater, um, every day. I mean, it's the magnitude of this injection is, is, pretty um, unfathomable, which is why we're seeing problems with induced seismicity and all of the earthquakes and the geysers and the sinkholes and the well blowouts um, in the Permian Basin. So, you know, some of those um, very rural communities are very poor. Um, Historically, you know, in the environmental justice field, you see that these sorts of environmental blights happen in communities of color and low income very consistently across the board. And so I would recommend anybody who's really interested in this to, to take a look at the orphan well map um, that, that's in Amanda's article, which I think is fantastic, and also look at EJ Screen. It's a tool mm. of the Environmental Protection Agency where you can filter based on different types of environmental hazards and different population demographics to see who's really being impacted by what um, to give yourself some perspective of the issues. Absolutely. It's, and yeah, EJ Screen is a, is a wonderful tool for a wide range of environmental issues and concerns and, um, you know, manages to terrify me every time I, I pop my address into there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's very well worth knowing um, what, what things we're most at risk for in our own neighborhoods yeah. and, and simply by where we call home. Um, which is absolutely, yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Well, and I think it's really easy to use as well. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of these things, these big data sets and big tools can feel overwhelming and like the, just like the magnitude of the problems can feel overwhelming. But EJ Screen is really easy, and especially if you're like a map geek like <laughs> I am, just go in there and have fun with it. I mean, um, it'll, it'll give you something to work towards, you know, like um, there's plenty of work to do here. Absolutely no, and it's 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 color coded, so it's it's very mm-hmm. easy to, to figure out. Oh, I'm in the red zone. That's that's not good. <laughs> it is definitely an easier mapping tool to 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 read into. Paige, I want to go back for a minute because you're, you're talking about you know all these various related effects. Um, but you had also mentioned on inject on injection drilling, and can can you talk about that some and how you're how you're seeing that as contributing to this or potentially intensifying certain effects? Yeah. Um, so injection wells, you know, there's a couple different types of injection wells under the EPA's environmental, uh, underground injection control program and class two injection wells, the, the, the railroad commission of Texas has primacy or primary permitting authority over class two wells. So that means they can permit as many injection wells as they want. And these injection wells are oftentimes for enhanced oil recovery or wastewater disposal. And there's a lot of wastewater permits coming online. We're seeing a lot of competition in the wastewater industry of kind of um, vying to stop the other person's permit so you can have a better share of the market. We're seeing wastewater companies making donations to the commissioners on the magnitude of hundreds of, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. And so the wastewater disposal industry is pretty huge and pretty relevant um but it's causing a lot of problems right it's causing that induced seismicity we're seeing earthquakes in west texas like we never ever did before there's an entire um sort of like regional governing um body that looks at like regional induced seismicity it's texas oklahoma and i think new mexico um 
because what we're we're putting a lot more fluids and stuff in the ground than than we kind of took out and that that you know messing with the pressure and changing the composition of the subsurface is going to have consequences right so um class 2 injection wells are already having a lot of problems we're seeing the majority of the well blowouts and um induced seismicity in sinkholes as related to class 2 injection wells and so we're really trying to point to the problems in this program to prevent the State Railroad Commission from getting any more authority. There's a new type of injection well coming out, new online by the EPA called Class 6, for long-term carbon dioxide sequestration. And these wells are going to be much bigger, much deeper, hold much higher volumes at higher pressure of CO2. And... Um, so this is us putting CO2 back into the Back into room. the ground, yeah. This is part of the sort of carbon capture and, mm-hmm. like, carbon management industry, climate mitigation strategy as part of the Inflation Reduction Act and the um, infrastructure IIJA, also known as a bipartisan infrastructure law, all have billions of dollars to subsidize carbon capture, hydrogen, and other sort of, like, low-carbon technologies one of which is carbon sequestration, and for which the EPA is designated a new class of injection wells, class six. And Texas is trying to get primacy, primary permitting authority, to give out permits for class six injection wells. And Commission Shift and some allies are putting together a coalition to fight back against this, to stop it. There's already a coalition in Louisiana fighting primacy there. But, you know, just given the terrible history of the Class Two injection program, we don't think the state needs any more authority to screw things up. I mean, hopefully they'll do a good job, but I'd like to see proof before we risk our lives. To that end, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the Railroad Commission in particular, other state bodies that are that are really, you know, taking a role in this. Um, but one of the things that I wanted to ask is, is what is the responsibility of drillers in this? You know, I mean, some of these sites obviously are so old that they've, you know, swapped hands many times. That companies that originally built them no longer exist. But you know, I, purely in, in your view, uh, what is the the responsibility of the oil and gas industry to addressing this issue if they have one? I think good companies want to do right. They, every good operator that I know knows bad operators and they want them out because they're giving everybody else a bad name. I hope that makes sense. But, um, you know, companies who go and drill a well have an obligation to plug it. I think anybody would agree with that. You know, you can't just go, go around poking holes in the ground and saying, oh, well, not my problem anymore, you know, when things start gurgling up. That's just not being a good steward of our natural resources. And that's the entire purpose of the Railroad Commission is to be a sort of steward and watch over the natural resources of, of Texas. And um, they're supposed to make sure that companies do that. And I think most companies want to do that. But clearly we've seen through the structures that are in place and through the sort of predatory transfer process and, uh, you know, failure of adequate financial structures that we have a terrible orphan well problem in here in Texas. And until, you know, we have leaders step up to do something and change it, um, it's going to continue. And, and it's going to continue to get worse as as the consequences uh, become more more severe um, with, with bigger wells, with bigger volumes, and with um, – more dangerous outcomes. Thank you. I mean, <clears throat> I don't. I don't have an opinion to offer <laughs> on um, how responsible oil companies are in this. I mean, 
I think that that is a matter being hotly debated in, in courts over whose responsibility for it are, are some of these wells on people's land, um, in the, the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a matter being hotly debated at the policy levels. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's especially important, this conversation, um, in light of the, the carbon capture. Mm-hmm. You want to say more about that or? Well, carbon capture involves injecting a heck of a lot of carbon underground and there's billions being invested on that at the moment. And, you know, it's a big, it's, it's talked about as a a major component of the fight against climate change. Mm -hmm. But as part of that, there needs to be a conversation of how to safely trap carbon underground and these issues with migration of produced water um, it, it raises questions about how the oil companies how the the policy folks how the how the regulators should go about handling this handling carbon storage no and I appreciate that I appreciate bringing it to policy as well because it does get at many of these environmental issues, just they are immensely complex, right? This is a well on someone's property that was drilled by a company that now is under the regulation of a state agency that, you know, there's there's multiple competing interests of whose responsibility is this. Of course, different people are all going to want someone else to be taking care of the problem, which is why it's being contested in courts. And we're not talking about something that happened last year or five years ago, we're talking about issues that have existed for 120 years, um, which means this is a, yeah, a deeply complex question of, of responsibility, of ownership, even literal ownership. Um, but then how do we resolve that and how do we make sure people are safe? Right. Yeah, yeah the, complex. This issue of liability, we were seeing it at the last legislative session, um, looking at um, proposed bills that would limit liability for um, disasters in the case of CO2 plume migration or escape, you know, pipeline rupture. Um, so I think the lawyer community, the legal community, is certainly aware of like what liability means and how important it is in the financing of these projects, right? If if it's determined that you know you're going to be responsible for this plume migration if it acidifies this underground aquifer in 50 years or 100 years and you're going to have to pay to you know clean that up or pump in water or whatever that's going to really change the business calculus of whether or not the projects happen and i don't think that liability all of those liability considerations have been clearly defined yet so you know for that reason we're seeing a lot of um, gray area in this space and there are a lot of unknown variables but to me that's really the crux of the issue Um, really well-defined liability that places the burden of responsibility on the operator Um, because if it's not there then it gets defaulted to the people of Texas right orphan wells are now the responsibility of the people of Texas to plug through their taxes etc and so you know you look at this industry that's made a lot of people here really really wealthy and we're all so proud of it but you know this is our opportunity to take some of that capital and do the right thing to ensure that we have a safe future for oil and gas for drilling for sequestration into the next hundred years or more. Thank you.
We are rapidly approaching the end of our hour here. So uh, before I let you both go, I, I just want to ask, you know, are are there things that you want to make sure we know that I haven't gotten to? And, and really critically, are there ways the public can get involved around this issue? Just, just <laughs> one other point on the issue of, yeah. of, uh, of carbon capture that, the orphan wells themselves are a liability for the for for the future of mm-hmm. of carbon capture, and that seems to be something that everyone acknowledged when when I talked to them is that it, it's it's easy enough to avoid orphan wells that they know about. You know when they're when they're when energy companies are plotting out where to store mm-hmm. carbon underground, they can avoid wells that are known, but when you're dealing with these undocumented wells that no one knows about that it, that's a liability for everyone absolutely anything else i think folks should know i would just direct you to our website commissionshift.org because we have a lot of information on all of our great programs you know we're working on waste pits um i think right now you can sign our petition to have stronger waste pit standards there's new rules coming out at the road commission you want to throw a quick definition of a waste oh, pit oh waste pits <laughs> oh that's an open pit full of mystery sludge oh so what it sounds uh, like yeah um you know it's basically where stuff is left to sort of evaporate or burn mm. off in an open pit and so there's a question around should they be lined or is unlined okay it's just sinking into the ground where it came from but you know, I think the bigger issue, one of the things for me is this sort of like proprietary mix of chemicals that we don't know what it is. And we know that PFAS, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even know what it stands for, but <laughs> forever chemicals, forever chemicals are going to stay in our soil and get into our, you know, groundwater. And so they're becoming a part of us. And so we really need better oversight on waste pit management. I would say that's again, another no brainer. I love the work that we do at Commission Shift because it just seems so like, accessible across the aisle you know Mm. everybody can get across like you know responsible regulation of waste pits and plugging orphan wells and changing the name for goodness sake (laughs) thank you so much thank you so much to both of you for being here i'm so delighted by this conversation and getting to to learn from you both and hear about what you've been working on um i i I want to to switch really quick to to announce a couple of events that are happening this weekend page that you were involved in starting as well so i'd really love to give you the floor Um, but there's the greater houston environmental summit on friday and the houston community climate summit on saturday both at the university of houston downtown And, and Paige, can you tell us a little about what's going on with those yeah i'd love to so um the citizens environmental coalition is having their summit Um, It's like a half-day networking event for folks who are in the environmental community that want to see each other and have some lunch and hear some table talks and stuff. So that's, I think, $50 tickets are still available on Eventbrite. Check out cechouston.org. That's going to be at UH Downtown from 12 to 5 on Friday. And then a partner event on Saturday is the Houston Climate Movement Community Climate Summit. Um, which is also going to be at UHD downtown um, from like 9 to 5. And there's going to be keynote presentations from Juan Mancias of the Carrizo Kamikrudo tribe and um, Matthew Tejada, the director of Envi- uh, environmental justice at the EPA. There's going to be community breakout sessions to talk about sort of issues in your community and brainstorm potential solutions. That's a free event with lunch and childcare and Spanish translation provided. So um, check out both of those great events um, at from Citizens Environmental Coalition and Houston Climate Movement. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, we have a quick segment from our other researcher, Sienna Yen, on ways to get involved coming up here in Houston. 
Hey everyone, this is Sienna coming to you with some upcoming opportunities to get involved. The Houston Audubon Bird Week is happening this week with events ranging from today through Sunday. Houston Bird Week is a celebration of the important role Houston plays in the journey of billions of migratory birds and the everyday lives of our resident birds. Houston Audubon and local conservation partners have arranged a week full of virtual and in-person events centered around our region's birds and wildlife. From birding opportunities and watch parties to bird walks, beach cleanups, and more. With a multitude of events each day, there's something for all people to enjoy. On Saturday, September 30th, from 9am to 12pm, as part of the Bird Week, the Houston Audubon is hosting a beach cleanup at Bolivar Flats Shorebird Sanctuary. Your efforts will help prepare the sanctuary for the thousands of migrants coming through during spring migration and help provide clean habitat for the beach nesting birds. Houston Audubon will provide gloves, grabbers, trash bags, and water. Just be sure to dress accordingly for the weather and sun protection. You can check out and register for these events by going on Houston Audubon's website, clicking Programs, and then Houston Bird Week. Most events are free, such as the bird walks and bird-friendly planting sessions. But some events like Bike and Bird and Birdie Yoga are only $5 per person. Again, register for this amazing week of events on Houston Audubon's website or by simply looking up Houston Bird Week. Take this opportunity to not only get involved in your community, but to also connect with nature. I hope you guys have a great and wonderful day. Thanks, Sienna. Finally, today from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. here on 90.1 KPFT Houston, we'll be broadcasting the live stream of the 2023 Houston Mayoral Forum on Animal Welfare. Tune in. You do not want to miss it. Uh, Up next time here on Gulf Streams, the environmental history of Houston. Why is Houston where it is? How did the city grow into the sprawling metropolis that we know today? And as the city evolves, what can we learn from our past development that might help us plan better for the future? If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured on Gulf Streams, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont@rice.edu. Gulf Streams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio. Produced by Weston Tordowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana. Audio engineer, Rico Henriquez. Research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and CNEN. Stay tuned for the R&R show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston.